Hello. I'm so glad that you're joining me for a conversation about taking care of your bones with Dr. Joy Wu. Dr. Wu is a board-certified endocrinologist who specializes in osteoporosis and other bone mineral diseases. She works at Stanford University as Chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Gerontology, and Metabolism, and is Vice Chair of Basic Science in the Department of Medicine. In our conversation, Dr. Wu sheds light on what's going on inside your bones and what you can do to protect yourself from osteoporosis. She believes that getting older doesn't have to mean frail bones, fractures, and the devastating consequences that can ensue. It turns out that there's a lot we can do to build and maintain strong bones throughout our lifetimes, from diet to exercise to hormones and medications. This episode is the first of a two-part conversation. In part two, we discuss treatment options for those who have been diagnosed with osteoporosis. One last thing that I wanted to quickly mention is that Dr. Wu and I briefly touch on the topic of hormone replacement therapy and the risks and benefits of taking estrogen. This is a topic we definitely don't do justice to in this podcast, but it's one that I've dug into more deeply in other episodes, so I can provide links to those in the show notes. Notably, I would recommend my conversations with Dr. Avram Blooming, who's a breast cancer oncologist, and Dr. Carla DiGirolamo, who's a reproductive endocrinologist. And those episodes provide a more comprehensive discussion of this nuanced topic. And of course, I always recommend talking to your doctor about your specific risk-benefit profile. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Hello and welcome to the show, Dr. Wu. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Dr. Davis. Really excited to be here. So you are an endocrinologist who specializes in bone health, but it's helpful to get a little clearer picture from you about what that really means in terms of clinical practice as well as research, what you actually do. Sure. So I'm an endocrinologist at Stanford. My clinical practice focuses on osteoporosis and metabolic bone disease, and I take care of patients who have osteoporosis or other disorders that put them at risk for fractures. I have a special focus on caring for cancer patients and survivors and trying to optimize their bone health. I also run a research lab. And so we're really interested in ways to make bone from stem cells and also strategies for preventing cancers from spreading to bone. Sounds like um, a lot of interesting work and a lot of cutting edge stuff must be happening there. It's a lot of fun. To get started, because we're going to be talking about primarily osteoporosis and within bone health, can you lay a foundation for us by explaining what exactly bones are. I think commonly they're thought of as just an inert physical scaffold, but I know just from my very superficial knowledge that there's actually a lot more to bone than that. Yeah, our bones are amazing. They do a lot for us. As adults, we have about 206 bones, and the cool thing is that every single one has a unique shape, but they all fit together perfectly. So one of the things our bones do for us is store minerals, about 99% of our body's calcium, about 85% of the body's phosphorus as phosphate. Um, and this is an important determinant of how strong our bones which are, which will be relevant for our discussions later about bone health. Our bones also provide mechanical support. They protect our internal organs. I think most people are aware of those functions, but they also produce hormones and they support the production of blood cells within our bone marrow. Yeah, so I can start to appreciate how there's 
so many different directions within the area of bone health that you could focus on, right? Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of very interesting interactions with to study in bone and, and bone cells communicate with other organs. And so lots of interesting things to research. Mm-hmm. So can you shed a little bit of light on how our bones evolve over our lifetimes? Because obviously we go through some development phases and then some deterioration phases. So what what is going on there and what's changing? Yeah. So as children are growing, the bones are becoming gradually stronger over time. And for most people, peak bone mass, which is when our bones are at their strongest, happens sometime in the late 20s, maybe early 30s. After that, with age, there's a very slow decline in bone mass. In women, there's a period of more rapid bone loss in, say, the five or 10 years around the time of menopause. And that, along with the fact that women's bones are on average smaller, is why women are usually at risk for fractures starting at an earlier age than men. How is that stuff orchestrated? I'm sure it's a very complex answer, but like, what are some of the biological factors that drive our peak to be in that in 20s, you know, late 20s and 30s? Is it hormonally mediated or what do we know about that? Yeah, so um, the amount of bone we have comes down to the balance between how much bone is being formed by cells called osteoblasts and how much bone is being broken down by cells called osteoclasts. So every day we have a little bit of, you know, new bone is being made, some bone is being broken down. When you have things like fracture where you need a repair, or if you have some kind of damage to the bones, those processes might get revved up a little bit more. So during adolescence, as the whole body is growing, of course, the bones are growing in size to match. And then once you've hit your adult height, the bones continue to strengthen for a little while, and and that's regulated by various hormones. And then over time with age, there are a number of things that contribute to the gradual decline. The rate of bone resorption or breakdown can start to outpace formation. And for women at the time of menopause, that's associated with a decrease in estrogen levels. And that's when the sort of resorption phase picks up in pace and, and why we lose bone a little more quickly around the time of menopause. I think that's something about human biology that's often not appreciated is that much of our body, there's a lot of turnover happening. There's cells dying and and new ones being formed and this ongoing replication. And maybe an analogy here is that you have this bathtub with a certain water level and you've got some, you know, you've got both water coming in and water coming out. And it's like the changes in the flow of incoming water and outcoming water that really is going to determine the water level or the, you know, the bone strength level. Exactly. And, you know, it it can be um, advantageous, of course, you know, if you had a fracture as a kid or even as an adult, bone is one of the organs that's able to completely sort of repair itself. Um, And so, of course, that's a beneficial process to have both of those cell types working together. So let's shift gears to talk about osteoporosis. So how is it defined and how common is it? Sure. So osteoporosis is essentially a disease of fragile bones that can occur, as we talked about, when you lose bone mass. And the fragility leads to an increased risk of fractures. It can be diagnosed by what we call a DEXA scan, a dual energy x-ray absorptiometry scan, better known as a bone density scan, which usually measures bone density in the spine and the hip, although it can also measure in the forearm. And the World Health Organization defines osteoporosis as a bone density in the spine or hip that is more than 2.5 standard deviations below that of an average young adult matched for gender and sometimes race or ethnicity. 
Osteoporosis can also be diagnosed clinically. For example, if someone suffers a fragility fracture, which is a fracture that occurs without a significant trauma. So for instance, you know, falling from a standing height or sometimes spontaneous spine fractures. And in those cases, that's a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is probably one of the most common diseases of aging. Half of all women and probably a quarter of all men over the age of 50 can expect to suffer a fragility fracture in their lifetime. Wow. I think the toll of fractures on people and on, on society and healthcare systems is, is often underappreciated until you're maybe in that age group where it's happening to everyone, but it's pretty substantial, is it not? Absolutely. So fractures can occur in places like the wrist, the spine, and obviously they can be quite painful. In the spine, they can cause curvature. So you'll sometimes see people who've developed a, a forward hunch or have lost some height. When fractures occur in the hip, they're especially devastating. About a quarter of people who suffer a hip fracture will die within a year, and less than half ever are able to walk independently again. And what's alarming is that the statistics can be even worse for men. Hmm. Why would that be? Men, on average, are older. So there's probably a component of frailty, but it's also the case that men are not often recognized as having osteoporosis. So it's diagnosed less frequently in men. And even when it's diagnosed, they are offered treatment at a lower rate. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that people don't put enough focus on preventative bone health? Because it's, I don't know, there's so much people spend a lot of energy, it seems, worrying about cancer and certain other diseases, but I don't hear as much talk about this, despite the huge toll. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that we could do with more awareness about the public health burdens of osteoporosis. I think there's sort of this assumption that it just happens with age and there's not much we can do about it. And people sometimes tell me that, well, I, you know, I broke my wrist, but that's because I fell. Um, and not always the understanding that maybe that shouldn't happen, right? That's a sign mm -hmm. that the bones are more fragile than maybe is beneficial. And also the fact that we can both screen for and prevent some of these fractures. But I think there is sort of this expectation that fractures are sort of an inevitable part of aging. And that doesn't have to be the case. Right. So what are some of the strongest risk factors, both that those that are modifiable and those that are not? Sure. So some of the really important risk factors for fracture are bone density and age. So as your bone density gets lower, of course, your risk of fracture goes up. What's maybe not as appreciated is that age is also an important factor. So if you're younger with a lower bone density, you might be protected. But as you get older, that risk of fracture is rising. And in fact, maybe above the age of 70 or so, you don't even need a bone density in the osteoporosis range to be at pretty high risk of fracture. So why would the same bone density have a different risk of fracture depending on your age? That's a great question. So I think that bone density is one of the best tools we have for predicting, but it doesn't capture everything. So other things about bone quality probably change with age, but also as people get older, there's a growing risk of falling. You know, maybe balance gets a little bit worse. People get a little bit more frail. And so I think other factors must be contributing to that increasing risk of fracture with age. Another important risk factor is whether you've ever had a fragility fracture, as, especially as an adult after age 50. For instance, if you look at those who have hip fractures, which 
we've mentioned can be particularly devastating. If you look back in time at their history, about half of people who've had a hip fracture previously had a fracture of some other bone, maybe a wrist or the spine. And then finally, other risk factors, some of which are modifiable, some of which are not, include smoking, excessive alcohol intake, having a low body weight, a history of a parent with a hip fracture, and then some diseases, especially inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, and some medications like glucocorticoids. So let's explore some of those a little bit more so we can kind of tease out some of the key factors within those. So can we talk a little bit about some of the lifestyle factors like diet? How much can diet really move the needle for preventative bone health? So of course, healthy diet has many benefits overall. For bone health, you know, the most important factors that we typically focus on are calcium and vitamin D. And, you know, early studies done when the general intake across the population was very low clearly show a benefit of having adequate calcium and vitamin D in preventing fractures. More recent studies, because it's become more common among the population to be having adequate calcium intake, it's been harder to demonstrate that benefit. But the recommended calcium intake for adults is somewhere between 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day. That can be calcium-rich foods like dairy products, such as milk, cheese, yogurt. It can also be found in dark green leafy vegetables, fish with soft bones like sardines. And then there are many calcium-fortified foods like juices, plant beverages, cereal. If you can't get enough calcium in your diet, you know, many adults do not have three cups of milk a day, you can take calcium supplements. Just keep in mind that your body can only absorb about 500 milligrams at a time, so you might need to divide that dose. And it's important to keep in mind not to overdo it and take too much calcium, because if there's too much, that can actually raise the risk of kidney stones. And there are some reports of links between very high dose supplements and heart disease. The other factor is vitamin D, which is important to help your body absorb the calcium from your intestines. And you can get vitamin D from exposure to sunlight, which stimulates vitamin D production in the skin. You can also get vitamin D in some fortified foods or from supplements. And that includes vitamin D2 from plant-based sources or vitamin D3 from animal-based sources. And again, the daily recommended ranges vary by age, but are usually somewhere between 400 and 1,000 international units a day. It's interesting that you spoke to the fact that earlier studies found stronger effects of those uh, nutrients on bone health, but there's been, the evidence is not as strong recently and that that probably reflects that the baseline level of intake in the population has changed. And I think there's just in general, this often people make this leap from, I need enough of X, therefore I should have as much of X as possible. So I think that message of getting enough is the key versus let me go for double the intake and I'll be even stronger. Exactly. More is not always better. So personally, do you follow the RDAs on those nutrients? So I'm pretty good with my calcium intake. I have yogurt and milk regularly, and I try to remember to take my vitamin D. I'll confess that sometimes that bottle gets a little dusty. Yeah, <laughs> but you're in California, so you get a little bit from the sunshine too, right? Right. And to be fair, I've checked my levels and they seem to be in a good range. So maybe the sun is helping me. <laughs> right, right. So let's talk a little bit about another lifestyle factor of exercise. So how important is that? And, you know, is it one of those things where the more the better or, or how would you describe the relationship between exercise and bone health? 
Yeah. So exercise, of course, has uh, lots of health benefits. It improves your energy and move. It can help with weight control. And it, there are studies demonstrating that it improves your cognitive function, lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease and even some cancers. So I recommend to all my patients that they exercise for an average of 30 minutes a day. Specifically for your bones, strength training is very important. I think of it as the opposite of, you know, when we send astronauts up into space, they can very quickly lose bone mass. And in fact, I read that in the space station, the astronauts actually can spend several hours a day doing resistance training to try to mitigate that. So here on Earth, uh, if we're doing strength training, we should be aiming for two or three times a week, all the major muscle groups, and that can be very beneficial for bone. But it's also important to keep working on things like balance and flexibility because, you know, of course, the less likely you are to fall, hopefully the less likely you are to fracture. I'm sure you're aware that for many women, especially older women, strength training is not something they grew up doing. So do you find that this is something people can successfully pick up later in life? Yeah, I think there are a lot of resources um, and there are a lot of different ways that you can approach strength training, right? I think we tend to think of strength training as lifting heavy barbells in the gym or something like that. But, you know, there are weight machines in the gym that you can start from very low weights and gradually work up. There's also a lot of very good exercises that can be done just at home, either with free weights or even body weights. For example, things like squats and push-ups, they really don't require any equipment. So, so I think there's lots of different ways and the important thing is to find something that works for you and that you'll stick to. Mm-hmm. How well do we understand the reason that strength training, the mechanism sort of through which strength training helps your bones? So I, there's a lot of research going on into this area about specifically what kinds of exercise might be especially beneficial. But I think broadly speaking, exercise both loads, you know, introduces mechanical loading on the bone. And again, to think about sort of the opposite of microgravity in space, the bones respond to mechanical loading by increasing the rate of bone formation. But there's probably also benefits to strengthening the muscles, which are, of course, attached to the bones. Um, And there is likely sort of communication between muscle and bone that responds to exercise as well. Right. So if you're going going back to that tub analogy, you're kind of turning the tap on, turning that on signal. So keep the water, keep adding water to the system because you're still going to be losing it to balance that out. When I first started to explore this and the impacts of different types of exercise and bone health, I started to think, well, what about athletes who are really into a certain sport? Is this going to be a problem for like swimmers is the one that immediately jumps to mind where you're not dealing with gravity. And um, so I'm curious if you can, can speak to that if you that's something that you're familiar with the, on the, the extent to which this plays out, if this is a sport that you really are into. And is it something that you would think about in, you know, in your kids, for example, like maybe I want my kid to be a runner, not a swimmer. And is it that dramatic of an impact that it's worth shaping your athletic choices over? Huh. That's a very interesting question. So I think athletic participation for kids also has lots of benefits. There's sort of the psychosocial benefits of being on a team and of course the health benefits of regular exercise. So I don't generally try to prescribe for people specific exercise. I think um, the most important thing is finding something that you enjoy that you will continue to do. You know, I, I think it is possible to carry it to extremes. And one example is that especially in young women who exercise maybe too intensely, that can lead to loss of menstrual periods. 
And then that, because of low estrogen levels, can lead to a negative impact on bone. Right. So, so you're saying the low body weight is a risk factor already. And then if you layer on top of that low estrogen, that particular super intense, super lean female athlete is putting herself at higher risk. Right. That combination can be tough on bones. But otherwise, I think exercise should have a lot of benefits. Yeah. So if your kid happens to love swimming, even though that's not a particularly good one for bone health because of the low impact nature, it still has so many upsides that you wouldn't want to dissuade them, but maybe you would balance that out by having some strength training or or how would you look at that? Yeah. I I think for young children, when they're sort of just exploring different sports, they really should be encouraged to see which one is fun, which one they enjoy the most and that kind of thing. I think as people become more devoted and more serious to a particular sport, it's generally true that cross-training has benefits no matter what sport you're in. So I would suspect that the elite college and professional swimmers probably do do quite a bit of weight training, which will offset the fact that swimming in and of itself is not necessarily a a weight-loading sport. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm just coming at it from a perspective of that developmental period where you're building your peak bone mass. Is it something that you should be particularly thinking harder about what your kid does in those years? Yeah, I think in those years, to me, it's still most important to just build a foundation of staying active. And so to me, probably the most important thing is just to allow kids to find what they enjoy and to build regular physical activity into their life. So to me, it's less important which particular sport they do or, or you know, whether they do a sport at all. But I think just the idea that we should be encouraging kids to be physically active on a regular basis. And hopefully that will stick with them into adulthood. Good. That makes things easier <laughs> to just open the door to anything that move your body, you know, and enjoy it and get hooked for life into that positive cycle. So let's shift gears a bit and talk about hormones, one of your areas of expertise. So I'm curious about estrogen in particular and how exactly that relates to bone health. Because I think for a lot of people, you think estrogen, you think ovaries, and well, what does that have to do with bones? So can you explain what goes on at menopause and maybe the role of estrogen more broadly? Sure. So estrogen plays an important role in maintaining bone mass. It keeps the rate of breakdown you know, at bay. So what happens at menopause is with the decrease in estrogen levels, because the ovaries stop making as much estrogen, the rate of bone breakdown starts to outpace the rate of bone formation. And over time, that leads to a decline in the amount of bone that we have. So there are estrogen receptors in the bone somewhere? Is that, yes. how does that work exactly? Well, so I think estrogen probably has very complex roles throughout the body, but there are definitely estrogen receptors in the bone and they regulate both formation but also the rate of bone resorption. And can you speak to the role of menopausal hormone therapy in that relationship? Yeah, so hormone replacement therapy after menopause has a complicated history. I think decades ago, it was thought to be uh, routine. People had observed that men have more cardiovascular disease than women, but the rates of cardiovascular disease rise in women after menopause. So I think a very natural conclusion was that it must be the loss of estrogen. And then in the early 2000s, the Women's Health Initiative published some surprising results that, in fact, hormone replacement therapy doesn't really prevent cardiovascular disease and, in fact, can be associated with higher risks of things like breast cancer. And so there was sort of, you know, the pendulum swung in the other direction and many women stopped taking hormone replacement therapy. In more recent years, it's become 
clear that particularly for women in the early years after menopause, there can still be some benefits, for instance, limiting some of the side effects of menopause, like hot flashes, etc. So it's a more nuanced discussion. There's really no doubt that hormone replacement can be beneficial for bones, but generally now I tell patients that we have other medications that don't come with the risks. And so hormone replacement therapy, I don't generally recommend as the primary treatment for bone loss, although there are some conditions where you might consider it. But yeah, I've, I've been following this very closely because it's, it's relevant to me. And I know there were a couple of consensus statements that said, for many women, the benefits do outweigh the risks, but it, you know, it's all very individual depending on how much of a toll menopause is taking on you and then your particular risk profile. Exactly. And so you said that some medications are a risk factor. So can you elaborate a bit on that, on how some common situations where medications play a role in, in declining bone health? Yeah. So one of the most common medications that, that can negatively affect the bone are steroid hormones or what we call glucocorticoids. They're useful for treating a variety of inflammation-related disorders, but their effects on the bone are sort of double-edged. They suppress bone formation and they promote bone breakdown, and that can lead to rather dramatic bone loss. And what are patients in that situation? I mean, if you have to take one of those medications for some condition, then what do you, how do you manage that? So I think there have been a number of improvements in recent years. Many of these inflammatory disorders now have other medications that can be used that maybe limit these effects of glucocorticoids. I think the physicians in the specialties like rheumatology and pulmonary medicine, where in the past, maybe high doses of glucocorticoids were used, they're also more aware now of the importance of using the dose that's needed to contain the disease, but then as much as possible, trying to get that dose lower. So is it fair to say that the greater the dose, the greater the impact on bone health? Yes, the greater the dose and the greater the length of time on which patients are on the doses of glucocorticoids. But also there's greater awareness now of the importance of uh, screening for bone loss while patients are taking these medications and if necessary, prescribing you know, something to counter that effect. So speaking of screening, what are, what are the guidelines on when people should be thinking about finding out their, you know, their baseline or when they should be checking in? Right. So the gold standard for screening for bone density, at least in the country, is the bone density scan or the DEXA scan. And most guidelines recommend that screening starts at age 65 for women and maybe around age 70 for men. And also in anyone over the age of 50 who either has significant risk factors. So maybe they're on glucocorticoids, maybe they have had a family history or they have other disorders that are associated with bone loss or an adult who's had a history of a low trauma or fragility fracture. Okay. So as we start to wrap up here, I always like to find out if there's particular myths or misinformation pieces that are circulating that you want to address and, you know, and just wish would go away. Well, the first we touched on a little bit, that fractures have to be an inevitable part of aging. I, I think it's very important to share the message that with proper screening and management, we can in fact prevent many fractures from happening. The other myth that I try to squash is that osteoporosis is a disease that affects only women. You know, we talked about how deadly hip fractures can be, and it turns out that about a third of hip fractures do occur in men. And although they're actually twice as likely to die, maybe because they're older and more frail at the time that they have the hip fracture, they're about 50% less likely to be offered treatment after this. So 
it's a disease that affects both men and women. Yeah, that's important to bear in mind, definitely. Do you have any advice for someone like me who does have a family history? And I've watched my grandmother really suffer from this and now my mom, and it's really quite terrifying. And I'm doing, you know, I'm doing everything I can. So just, you know, in terms of just healthy diet and nutrition and exercise, but it just feels, yeah, I guess I'm hoping to hear that it's not inevitable. I don't know any other words of wisdom you can offer for people who are, who really are aware of this and wondering what more they can do. Right. No, and, and it can be very impactful to see those close to you, you know, suffering the consequences of osteoporosis. It doesn't have to be inevitable. It sounds like you are doing the right things, trying to get enough calcium and vitamin D and making sure that you exercise regularly and incorporating strength or weight training. Mm-hmm. And you're still very young. At some point, you could talk to your doctor about when a bone density scan would be indicated, maybe to sort of set your baseline. And, and then that can help mm-hmm. determine how closely you need to monitor and you know, if there's additional interventions that might be needed. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, is there anything you want to say in terms of raising awareness for those who maybe don't have this as much on their radar, but perhaps should? Yeah, I think, you know, osteoporosis in a way is silent. Uh, we can't really feel our bone density declining. That is why there are screening guidelines. The goal is always to pick up the risk before the fractures actually happen. So Hopefully, if you're getting good care from your primary physician and, and being screened for things, that that includes discussions about, you know, your bone health and risk for osteoporosis. Yeah. Are there any resources you'd recommend online to educate yourself more about bone health, either from yourself or from your professional organizations? Yeah. So the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation has a really nice webpage for patients and physicians that has a lot of information and links to advice about diet and exercise and and even medications. Some other resources include the Hormone Health Network of the Endocrine Society, which is a patient-oriented information resource. And then the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research is another organization to which I belong, which is very active in this area of research and has a lot of resources primarily for physicians. Great. Well, thank you very much for all this very practical information. Hopefully people are listening and taking action so that they can avoid the fate of this silent disease. Thanks for having me. This is a a big priority of mine. So any opportunity to share the word is really appreciated. Mm -hmm. All right. Take care. Thanks.